Daniel 6, the whole chapter, verses 1 through 28, says, It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects, the satraps, and the counselors and governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. Now, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction that anyone who makes uh, he said, they, they said, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel, and he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and the Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed unconcerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him and also before you. O king, I have done no harm." Then the king was exceedingly uh, glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded in these those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions. They, their children and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces.
Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. And he who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Now, Darius, if you remember when we met together three weeks ago, Darius has just become king over Babylon. Remember, this power was given to him by Cyrus, who was in charge of all of the Medes in the Persians' kingdom. But Darius is over the area in the city of Babylon. Now, Darius now sets up the authorities under him to help him rule Babylon, and he appointed 120 satraps, and over them, three high officials who would kind of supervise the satraps, and they would all report to uh, these high officials. Now, as you see in there, it says that he would suffer no loss. In other words, they were probably in charge of the collecting of the taxes and the governing and watching all that, and so they were, the, Darius was making sure that everything was being handled, and so he had 120 governors, if you will, over the areas, and then over the, all of those 120 were three high officials. And if you remember, as we read here tonight, Daniel was so impressive that Darius, not long after this, decides he's going to make him head over the whole kingdom just under himself. Now, usually, though, people that were in authority in the previous regime were put to death. When the new kings would come in, they would put down all the authorities and the rulers of the previous regime. I don't know if you've ever seen that or you know what I'm talking about, but that's what they would do. How come Daniel was kept alive and put in authority? Now, we're going to speculate on this a little bit, but if you remember at the end of our study of last time, at the, because of his ability to interpret the writing on the wall, he was made third ruler in the kingdom. Remember, Belshazzar and his father were co-regents, and he had been made third ruler in the kingdom. It didn't last very many hours, because not long after that, that night Belshazzar dies, and, and, and uh, per, uh, Cyrus comes in, and he then puts Darius in charge of Babylon. But there must have been something about Daniel that was already impressive enough that word had probably already gotten to the Medes and the Persians and Darius about him. I have biblical precedent to share with you what I'm sharing with you. I hope you understand whenever I speculate, I will only speculate using scripture. So go with me to Jeremiah 39. Let me show you where this happened before with the man of God when another nation came in and took over. And Jeremiah 39, we'll start in verse 11 and we'll go all the way to chapter 40, verse 5. This is at the very end of the Babylonians coming and taking over Israel and, and Judah. They had three waves. This is the third wave. This is the end of it here. Nebuchadnezzar is coming in to defeat Israel and, and Judah. And so in Jeremiah 39, verse 11, look what it says. It says, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, gave command concerning Jeremiah through Nebuzardan, the captain of the guard, saying, take him, look after him well, and do him no harm, but deal with him as he tells you. In other words, you just do whatever he says he wants to do. It's an interesting thing to say about a prisoner. 
So Nebuzardan, the captain of the guard, Nebuchadnezzar and Rabsaris and Nergal Sar Ezer and Rab Mag and all the chief officers of the king of Babylon sent and took Jeremiah from the court of the guard. They entrusted him to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, son of Shaphan, that he should take him home. So he lived among the people. Now the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah while he was shut up in the court of the guard. Go and say to Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will fulfill my words against this city for harm and not for good, and they shall be accomplished before you on that day. But I will deliver you on that day, declares the Lord, and you shall not be given into the hand of the men of whom you're afraid. For I will surely save you and you shall not fall by the sword, but you shall have your life as a prize of war because you've put your trust in me, declares the Lord. If you know anything about the story, this Ethiopian had actually uh, protected Jeremiah. Now the word, verse, chapter 40, verse 1, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord after Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, had let him go from Ramah, when he took him bound in chains along with all the captives of Jerusalem and Judah who were being exiled to Babylon, the captain of the guard took Jeremiah and said to him, the Lord your God pronounced this disaster against this place. The Lord has brought it about and has done as he said, because you sinned against the Lord and did not obey his voice. This thing has come upon you. Now behold, I release you today from the chains on your hands. If it seems good to you to come with me to Babylon, come and I will look after you well. But if it seems wrong to you to come with me to Babylon, do not come. See, the whole land is before you. Go wherever you think it good and right to go. If you remain, then return to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, whom the king of Babylon appointed governor of the cities of Judah, and dwell with him among the people. Or go wherever you think it right to go. So the captain of the guard gave him an allowance of food and a present and let him go. Now, in this interesting, as the final wave of taking over Judah and, and the land of, of Israel and, and the Jews is happening by Nebuchadnezzar, Jeremiah is taken captive too. And he's in chains. But Nebuchadnezzar sends word to his captain of his guard and says, hey, there's a guy, Jeremiah, there. He, he's actually a man that I respect. Set him free and tell him he gets to do whatever he wants to do. If he wants to come to Babylon, we'll take good care of him in Babylon. If he wants to stay in, in Israel, we'll let him stay in Israel. He gets to do whatever he wants. And look at, if you notice, look at verse, uh, again, verse 2. The captain of the guard of chapter 40 took Jeremiah and said to him, The Lord your God pronounced this disaster against this place. The Lord has brought it about and has done as he said. Uh, isn't that interesting? How did the captain of the guard in Babylon know that God had prophesied to Israel that this was going to happen? By the way, only the ones of you that might know this might have been a part of our Ezekiel study a while back. Do you remember in our Ezekiel study, he had taken, Jeremiah was prophesying at the same time Ezekiel was prophesying. Jeremiah was doing it in, in Israel and Ezekiel was doing it in um, Babylon. He had, Ezekiel had been taken captive as well. And Jeremiah was making prophecies and they were being read in Babylon by Ezekiel. And word had gotten, and isn't it interesting that the Babylonians believed the promised prophecy of God when the Jews didn't? The whole time Jeremiah and Ezekiel are saying, God said he's going to come and Nebuchadnezzar is going to win. They're like, no, no, no. All, we have these other prophets. They're all saying everything's going to be fine. We're going to have peace. We're going to be good. We're, we're all right. And, and they mocked the prophets for saying, but the Babylonians believed the prophecies. That's an amazing thing. Let me just say this real quick to you. Your God's able to communicate his truth to people. He don't need you. He wants to use us, but don't think that he needs you. We're going to talk about that a little bit later tonight. Now, Knowing that Darius desires to promote Daniel even more than already being one of the top three, 
Some, and I say some, we're going to come back a little later in our study of Daniel and look at the fact that verse 7 says that all of them are in agreement. And I'm going to show you from the scripture that all of them weren't in agreement. And I'll show you that from the scripture later on. But some of these uh, high officials and satraps come up with a plan to discredit Daniel, but they can't find any way to charge him with anything. His business dealings are all above board. If you go back and look at verse 4, you'll see that they tried to find something in the kingdom and how he dealt in the kingdom that they could accuse him of. They all knew that they probably were taking bribes and, and skimming off the, off the top because that's how people do business. And they just assumed that Daniel would too, so they decided maybe he hired a private investigator or whatever. They're going to find where he's cheating, stealing money from the kingdom, and they're going to be able to accuse him and get him to lose his job. But they can't find anything. By the way, look at Daniel chapter 6 real quick and look at verse uh, 13. And before we read verse 13, let me ask you a question. Does anybody want to take a wild guess at how old Daniel is right about now? He's 80 years old. He's 80 years old, and he's been in Babylon for a while. Most of his life. Remember, he was a young boy when he was taken captive. He was like 13, 14. He's been in Babylon almost 70 years. And what happens? They don't hate him for any other reason except what we see here in verse 13. Look closely at verse 13. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah. He's still remembered 70 years later as an exile from Judah. Why do they hate him? Because he's a Jew. He's already been proven to be a man of God, full of the spirit and wisdom. I mean, a very impressive guy. Yet they still hate him because he's a Jew. I'm not going to go any further with that right now. We don't have time. I could spend the rest of the night showing you what the scripture has to say about that and how the world's going to treat Israel. But right now, we'll leave that for another time. But I'm going to ask you a question. If your life was carefully examined, could anyone find fault with how you conduct your life and your job? And I mean, don't. Be quick to this because it's the answer should be no. Don't joke and say, oh, yeah. No, no, the answer should be no. You know, the Bible is actually very clear that we who are Christians should be doing our work to the Lord, not to men. And if we're doing it to the Lord, we're doing it to the best of our ability and we're doing it honorably. Well, go with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. Go to 1 Peter 2. Look at verses 11 and 12. If the answer isn't no, Ask God for his grace to have it become so. Well, we'll get, to, we'll get to that. Look at 1 Peter 2, verses 11 and 12. I didn't ask you if people saw it that way. Let me ask you if, if, you're, doing it, if you're doing it that way. 1 Peter 2, look at verses 11 and 12. Behold, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Even though they try to accuse you, they can't find anything. They want to accuse you. They want to find you as an evildoer, but they can't find anything. Go to Philippians chapter 2. Look at verses 14 and 15. Philippians 2, verse 14 and 15. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, 
that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Of course, then he goes on and says, holding fast to the word of God. Would you not agree that the world's pretty dark right now? And the Bible says it's going to get darker. Folks, we have the easiest opportunity probably than any other Christians probably have to shine as lights in this world because of how dark the world is. You, you, you all seen those light bulbs that have like three different levels, you know, click, click, click. And you don't even have to get to the third click nowadays to shine. But the sad thing is, even though the Bible says we're to be ready to, ask, uh, to give reason for people ask for the hope that lies within us, very few Christians are being asked because there's not much of a difference. One of the things I had to deal with with churches while I was up there in Michigan and Ohio and Virginia this past three weeks was the fact that as much as we would agree that the world today is treating each other horribly, everybody's setting themselves up in their camps. And if you don't see it like I see it, you're my enemy. And there's vitriol and hatred that's out there on social media and all this stuff. And people are really treating each other pretty bad. Would we not agree? The sad thing is we're seeing in our churches today, too. Christians amongst Christians over the mask debate and vaccines and how we're treating each other. Folks, the Bible says we should not be like the rest of the world. There should be a difference among us. And the Bible says the evidence of the spirit in us would be love and joy and peace and patience and gentleness and kindness, self-control, not dissension, factions, envy. Look closely again. Do everything without grumbling or disputing. That's going to be important later on. Jump with me real quick to Acts chapter 24. I'm going to show you another example of what I'm talking about here that will be valuable at the very, very end of our study tonight as we close. So I want you to remember this. When Acts 24, look at verses 10 through 21. Paul has been arrested and he's on his way to Rome. He's getting tried in front of a Roman tribunal right now, but the Jews are there also when they're accusing him. But listen to what Paul says in Acts chapter 24, verse 10. And so when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, And he says, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Don't miss that. I'm going to show you some more. Paul says this. I was in the temple, and you can double check. It's been no less than 12 days or no more than 12 days, and they didn't find me causing a stir. I wasn't being a jerk. I wasn't rebelling in that way. I was making no disputes. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, this is Christianity, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and men. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms, that's offerings to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you this day. As he's on trial, he said, said, Judge, if you do the research and you do the checking, you'll find they got nothing. Everything you're accusing me of, I didn't do. I wasn't causing a stir. I wasn't trying to turn everything around. I was quietly doing 
my worship of God, and I wasn't causing a stir. That'll be important later on. It'll all do us well to ask God regularly to examine us. He alone knows our hearts, and he's able to give us a fair assessment. I'm not going to have you turn there because of time, and we need to keep moving for the much we need to cover tonight. But let me just say this to you. In Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, David prays this prayer. And by the way, that's the end of the whole Psalm 139 where David's been saying, there isn't a place I go that you're not there, and there isn't a thing I do that you don't already know. And a word before his words even on my tongue, you know it already. He says in verse 23 and 24, he says, search me, God, know my heart. Test me. Show me if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the path of of righteousness and everlasting. In other words, David says, God, I'm not going to examine myself. I want you to examine me. Same thing, again, 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 through 5. We don't have time to go there, but I'm going to just quote it to you a little bit. Paul says that he doesn't care if he's judged by any human court. And he says, in fact, I don't even judge myself. He said, because I wouldn't give myself a fair assessment. I don't know of anything against myself. I think I'm okay, but that doesn't mean I'm thereby acquitted. It's the Lord who judges. He knows the heart. And therefore, he says, hold off on judging people and let God separate who's right and who's wrong. Let Let me just say this to you, folks. It will do you well to keep short accounts with God. Remember how Paul said in Acts chapter 24, again, look at verse, the end of verse 16, I have made pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. How you do that, though, is not you saying, how do you think I'm doing? You say, God, if there's something, show me. And I humble myself before you that when you speak, I want to do what you say. I actually have done a study on this. I only can find two places in the Bible where it t- says that we're to examine ourselves. The first one I want to tell you about is in Acts, sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. It says, examine yourself to see whether or not you're in the faith. Is Jesus in you? I want to show of hands tonight. How many people here can raise your hand right now and say, I know for a fact that I'm saved and Jesus is in me? All right, put your hands, hands down. Do you need to do that examination anymore? No, because once he comes in, he stays forever, right? So that examination is already off the table. You've done it, you're done. There's only one other one. It's in 1 Corinthians 11. when it says, when you come to the Lord's Supper, the Lord's table, you're to examine yourself. Listen closely. You're to examine whether or not you're treating the body well. That's what the whole passage is about. You're not to think about the body and the blood. If you look at the context and the whole context of the whole book and that chapter, Paul's dealing with how they were treating each other. And when he says, examine yourself, you're not to think about, have I considered the body and considered the blood of Jesus? It's talking about this body that you're to examine whether or not you've treated this body well. So I'm going to challenge you to keep short accounts with God. It will do us all well to remember that we all are flawed people. We do make mistakes. But the difference between Saul and David is the fact that Saul started off real well. If you do a study of Saul's life, Spirit of God came upon him. He prophesied. Everybody said, is Saul one of the prophets? If you look at when they made him king, he was humble. And and when they made him king, there was a group of guys that didn't want him to be king. And then, then God gave him his first victory over the Ammonites. And after that victory, a group of the guys said, hey, Saul, let's go kill those guys that didn't want you to be king. It's already proven that you're God's man. And Saul humbly said, no, he didn't want to be vindictive. He said, you know, pretty much everybody's had a bad day. We're going to give them some grace. But when Saul sinned, he never really repented. He became more and more prideful. And, of course, by the end of his life, anybody, including his son David, who looked like he might take his throne or didn't want him to be king, he wanted him dead. Did David live a perfect life? 
No, of course not. We all know David did some big sins. But you know what? The Bible says David was a man after God's own heart. You know why? Because when David sinned, he realized it and he humbled himself and he confessed and he agreed with God and he kept short accounts. That's what it means to be a person that makes great pains to live a clear conscience between God and man. Don't examine yourself to see how you're doing. And don't ask your brother or sister how you're doing because they'll love to come up with stuff because it makes them feel better when they tell you what you're doing. But humble yourself regularly before God and say, if there's something, please show me. And when he does, listen and obey. So since they can't find any fault in Daniel's business affairs, they decide to go after him by using his faith in God and God's word and his obedience to God and his word to trap him. By the way, do you know that Satan's, of course, behind this? People even did that to Jesus. Go with me real quickly to John chapter 8. Let me show you something in John chapter 8. I'm going to just start in verse 1. It says, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives early in the morning. He came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down, and he taught them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law... Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? Look closely. They said this to test him, that they might have some kind of charge to bring against him. We don't need to get into the rest of the story for the point, but we just want you to see they took the word and his following of it to use as a trap. They knew that Daniel was faithful to the word of God, and they said, oh, we can take what he does and we can twist it. So they came up with this plan. They knew that Daniel prayed regularly to his God. Now, actually, we can see from the scriptures, go back to Daniel 6. We can see that Daniel prayed three times a day. And we get a couple of other other things about Daniel's prayer time that I don't want you to turn into a law for you because I'm going to show you why Daniel did it. But Daniel prayed three times a day. Which way did he face according to the scripture in the story we've read? Toward Jerusalem. Now, I don't want you all to go get a compass and figure out where the Jerusalem is from your house and put a prayer mat down and make sure you pray. No, there's a reason why Daniel did that. And I'm going to show you in a second. He was obeying the word of God. But it's not something that we have to do. But just stick with me here. But it also appears that not only did he pray three times a day, each of those times were probably around the times of the sacrifices that were offered in the temple. I can show you that by go to Daniel chapter nine real quick. And look at verses 20 and 21. We'll see one of his prayer times. Daniel says in verse 20 of Daniel 9, While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. Now look closely. It's obvious he's praying now at the time of the evening sacrifice. It's probably been the the third time he's prayed that day. But what was his prayer? What was he praying about? He was confessing his sins and the sin of his people and making his request toward what and for what? The holy hill of the Lord. Where is that? Does anybody know what the holy hill of the Lord is? 
It's, it's the temple area in Jerusalem. Daniel would pray three times a day in his upper room facing Jerusalem, but he was praying, confessing his sins and the sin of his people, and he was praying toward the temple. By the way, the temple didn't exist at that time. It had been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar when they had come in and taken him captive. But he still prayed toward Jerusalem, toward where the temple was. You want to know why? Because God, in his word, had told the Jews that if they're ever in a situation like Daniel was in, that's what they were to do. Stick with me. Go to 1 Kings 8. I can't wait to show you this to you. i got to be honest with you. In all my years of studying the scripture, I had never put this together. I can't wait till we get to studying Daniel 9 and we look some more at that when we get there because there's so much here. But I want to show you in 1 Kings chapter 8. We'll start in verse 22. The temple in Jerusalem has just been built and Solomon is dedicating it and Solomon's praying a prayer. And listen to what he prays in verse 22 through 30, and then we're going to jump to verse 46. 1 Kings 8, verse 22. Solomon prays. He says, Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel, and he spread out his hands toward heaven, and he said, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. You have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your, mouth, with, with your mouth and with your hand have fulfilled it this day. Now, therefore, O Lord, God of Israel, keep for yourself David, my father, what you have promised him, saying that you shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel, if only your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me as you have walked before me. Now, therefore, O God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant David, my father. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. Yet, God, have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord, my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day, look closely, toward this house. The place of which you have said, my name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place and listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when you pray, when they pray toward this place and listen in heaven, your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. So now jump over to verse 46. As you're doing that, look closely. Solomon's begun his prayer at the dedication of the temple. And he says, God, this is a temple that you've had us build according to your specifications, according to your design. It's a place that you said you would dwell. But we know for, that there's no way you can dwell there. I mean, the whole heaven and earth can't contain you, let alone this house we built. But you've told us to do this. And you've told us that if we put our hearts toward you and we remember that you will honor those who honor you. And you've made a promise to my father that his sons will stay on the throne of Israel as long as we follow you. I want to be one of those guys. And so our hearts are here and we ask you when we pray toward this place would you hear and would you forgive now look at verse 46 we skipped over some parts of his prayer but look at what he says in verse 46 he's continuing in his prayer he says if they the Israelites sin against you for there is no one who does not sin I love that attitude and you are angry with them and give them to an enemy so that they are carried away captive to the land of their enemy far off or near Yet if they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive and repent, 
and plead with you in the land of their captors, saying, We have sinned and have acted perversely and wickedly. If they repent with all their mind and with all their heart in the land of their enemies who carried them captive and prayed to you toward their land, which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name, then your heart, then here in heaven, your dwelling place and their, their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions that they have committed against you and grant them compassion in the sight of those who carried them captive that they might have compassion on them for they are your people and your heritage which you brought out of Egypt from the midst of the iron furnace. Let your eyes be open to the plea of your servant and the plea of your people Israel, giving ear to them whenever they call to you. For you separated them from among all the peoples of the earth to be your heritage, as you declared through Moses, your servant, when you brought our fathers out of Egypt, O Lord God. Look what he says. He says, God, if down the road the people of Israel sin against you, and there's no one who doesn't, and you get angry enough that you take us captive because you've already told us back at the time of Moses that if we obeyed you, we'd be blessed in the land. And if we don't, you're going to take us out. And if you choose to do that and you take the Israelites captive, whether it's a near nation or a far nation, but if they repent when they're in that land and they turn and they face toward Jerusalem and they pray toward this hill and they seek your face, would you hear their prayer and bring them back to this land? You know what Daniel's been doing every day, three times a day? Praying toward Jerusalem for the day that God would hear his prayer and bring him back to the land. How long has he been praying now in Babylon? Almost 70 years. Well, keep in mind, God had already said that the captivity was going to take 70 years. We'll get to that when we get to Daniel 9. I'll show you that. Jeremiah had been told by God and he prophesied they'd be in Babylon 70 years because of their sin. And we'll get to that later on. But even though Daniel knew that it was going to be 70 years, he still prayed every day with a broken heart toward Jerusalem. By the way, if you know anything about the history of Israel, when God did release them from the Babylonian captivity to go back into the land, not a lot of them wanted to. A lot of them were happy there in Babylon and intermarried with the Babylonians and didn't go back. But there were few who had been praying to go back. And why did Daniel pray three times a day toward Jerusalem? Because Solomon had prayed that in 1 Kings 8. And he was fulfilling that prayer. An amazing man. So the jealous leaders devised a plan that would doom Daniel. They knew he would always obey his God over the decrees of men. So they tricked Darius into signing a law that no one could pray to any God or anyone except to Darius for one month. Now, once this law was signed, it could not be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians. We saw that in Daniel 6, verses 6 through 9. They told the king, you know, you know, according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, once you sign it, it cannot be changed. Even the king couldn't change the law. Once it was signed and sealed, even the king couldn't change it. Some of you know this, maybe some of you don't. You know the book of Esther and the story of Esther and Mordecai? That actually happened Years later, in Babylon, during the time of the Medes and the Persians' kingdom, a couple of kings later, a king named Ahasuerus. But go with me to Esther chapter 1. Let me show you real quick in Esther 1 and Esther 8 how the law of the Medes and the Persians was even there in the book of Esther. In Esther chapter 1, verse 19, 
It says, if it please the king, let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. This is his wife who had embarrassed him in the party because they were all getting drunk and he wanted his wife to come dance for him and his buddies and she very wisely said, I ain't doing it. But they then got so mad they decided they were going to make a law that she could never go into his presence ever again. And you see it? And it can't be revoked. Go over to chapter 8. Look at verses 7 and 8. Chapter 8 of Esther, verse 7. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther to the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. They had gotten the king to sign a law of the Medes and the Persians that on a certain day all the Jews could be killed, couldn't be revoked. So what does the king do? He says, I'm going to write another law, though, that says that all the, on that day, the Jews can defend themselves. and Anybody that comes after them, they can kill. They couldn't change the law, but he added to it enough that the Jews could defend themselves. But again, the law of the Medes and the Persians, if it was written, it had to be followed. Now, look again at Daniel chapter 6, verse 7. It appears that everyone's involved. Look again at verse 7. Actually... We'll start in verse 6, because there's a word in verse 6 that comes all through this chapter, and I want to show it to you. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king. To him. By the way, that word agreement in our Bibles actually could be used as a throng. There was a big group. And you'll see it a couple of places. You'll see it again in verse 11. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition. So a group of them were watching him pray. If you see again in uh, verse 15, then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, that word could be also translated a throng. There was a group of them for sure. It wasn't a small number. But look at what he says in verse 7. All the high officials of the kingdom and the prefects and satraps and the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. By the way, how do we know that it wasn't all of the 120 satraps and everybody that's high officials and all that? How do we know this? Daniel definitely didn't agree. He was... He wouldn't agree to that and then go pray. Not only that, jump over to verse 24 again. Look what happens at the end of this story. In verse 24 of Daniel 6, And the king commanded, and those men, it doesn't say all of them, the 120, those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. By the way, if it was 120 satraps, and the governors, and all their wives, and all their children, there wouldn't have been enough room in the pit for everybody. It wasn't all of them. They lied and said, everybody's in agreement, king. But they all weren't, especially Daniel. And it's obvious that the ones who were actually the ones behind this, or the ones that kept meeting with the king, are the ones who were thrown into the den of lions. By the way, I've learned over the years as a pastor when people come to me and say, Pastor, I just want to share this with you, but there's a bunch of people that feel this way. I've come to find out over the years, chances are it's not big a crowd as they like to pretend it was. 
I actually, when I was a pastor in Chicago years ago, had this one deacon and his wife who would meet with me regularly once a month. And this would, they would meet with me to say, they say, Pastor, you're young and, and, uh, and people, don't, they're kind of afraid of you. You're intimidating and they don't want to really come share with you because they're intimidated by you. But as a deacon here, they speak to us and we don't agree with these people, Pastor, but we just feel it's our job to let you know what some of the people are saying. And I was young and I'd say, well, well tell me and, then after a while, as I grew in my walk with the Lord, I realized Matthew 18 says, you got a problem with your brother, you go see your brother. You don't go have someone else go first. So I told this deacon and his wife, I said, you know what, this is our last meeting. You know, um, two things. One, the Bible says that if they got a problem with me, they're supposed to come to me. And two, even though you say you don't agree, you seem to be giving off the, opinion, or the impression that you agree enough that they feel comfortable talking to you about it. So let's just stop the meetings. It was three years later when God moved me from that church to the next one that on the very last Sunday that I was preaching at that church, it was Easter Sunday of 2000. I preached the first service. Our church had grown and we had two services. I preached the first service, taught my Sunday school class, and right as I'm about to go into the pulpit on the second service on my last message to that church as pastor, that deacon calls me and he says, can I talk to you real quick? And I'm like, church, I got to get in there. And he goes, it won't take a second. So we go off into the cry room in the back of the sanctuary where I could see what was going on, but we could talk. And he ripped me a new one from one side to the other. And he said, um, you know how all these years my wife and I have been meeting with you, telling that the people had the opinions? It wasn't anybody else. It was us. We didn't like what you were doing. You know how the church voted to give you money to help you buy a house when you went to Florida? We voted no. We just wanted you to know we voted no. And we haven't agreed with anything you've done the whole time we were here. And then he went like this. He went, oh, I feel better. The truth really will set you free. And I, the, by God's grace, I knew the whole time he was speaking, the Holy Spirit was speaking to me saying, this is coming from the enemy. Just let it bounce off you. It's coming from the enemy. Let it bounce off you so that you go into the pulpit ready to preach the way I want you to on the last message. It was an attack of the enemy. By the way, since then, he's gotten right with God and has become a friend and has sent me many letters apologizing. It's amazing how many times he's apologized. And I say, look, it's over. It's over. It's forgiven. But they would say, a lot of people feel this way. Chances are, probably not as many as they pretend. Go to Psalm 37. What did they plan for Daniel? They planned for him to be eaten by the lions, correct? What happened to them? Yeah, go to Psalm 37. They got eaten by the lions. Look at verses 12 and following. Psalm 37, starting in verse 12. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked draws the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those whose way is upright. Their sword shall enter their own heart, and their bows shall be broken. Let me say something to you. Are there not some wicked people in the world right now who are planning some wicked things in our government and in the world? Take a deep breath, folks. The Bible says God's laughing. He knows. We don't got to get all belly aching about it. We as Christians should be living at peace in this time, knowing that our Father is in control. When Jesus stood before Pilate and wouldn't speak in his own defense... 
Pilate's like, don't you realize I have the authority to have you released or put to death? And Jesus calmly said, you wouldn't have any authority over me unless it was given to you by my father. In other words, I'm not even looking at you. I'm looking past you. And I want to challenge you to do that. Folks, the world is freaking out and everybody's getting mad and waving flags and blowing horns on the side of the road. We got to fix the government. We got to do this. We got to do that. The Bible says we Christians should be at peace and praying and knowing what God is going to tell us to do and where to do it. And we'll get to that at the very close here in a little bit without causing a stir. Believing that God's in control and these people that are planning stuff, God knows. God knows. Well, if we don't do something, um, I think Acts chapter 17, Paul says in verse 25, God, he says in verse 24, he doesn't live in temples made by human hands. That's what Solomon prayed. And verse 25 says he's not served by human hands if he needed anything. By the way, he also noticed that these men feigned respect for Darius, but they're actually manipulating him and using his authority for their own purposes. Yeah, it did. But when they come to him, oh, king, we don't want anybody to pray to any God or even any man except you for the next month. Well, man, that fed Darius's ego. <laughs> I don't got any problem with that. But they really didn't respect him. They were just using his authority to get him. Go to Matthew 22. By the way, once again, they even did this to Jesus. Look at Matthew 22 and verse 15. The Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle Jesus in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you don't care about anyone's opinion for you're not swayed by appearances. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Here they are blowing kisses toward him. And Jesus says, Jesus aware of their malice. Now, I'm going to take your eyes off the Pharisees for a minute. I want you to allow God to put them back on you. We do the same thing. We sometimes try to use God's power and authority to get things we want done. Isn't that what Martha did in Matthew? I'm sorry, in Luke 20. Uh, sorry, Luke actually uh, it was verse, chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. And Luke 10, Martha is serving Jesus and working in the kitchen. And she says, Lord, tell my sister to help me. She calls him Lord and then bosses him around. Sometimes we try to use God's authority to accomplish things we want done. Do we have authority with Christ? Yes, but not to the point that you get to call what is going to happen. Actually, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 2 that everything has been put in subjection to Jesus and laid at his feet. Then it goes on and says this, yet at present we do not see everything in subjection to him. Is all authority been given to Jesus? Yes. Is he exercising that full authority? Not yet. He's in control, but he's allowing things to happen for his purposes. Oh, one day he's going to come and rule and reign and have full authority. Beware of any kind of preaching and teaching that says you have dominion and you can just cast demons out. If Jesus is not exercising that full authority, who says that you and I at any time can just call the name of Jesus and have something happen? Be careful of trying to use his power for your own purposes. It also appears that Darius loved and respected Daniel, as we saw earlier at the beginning of our study. And when he realized that the other, what the other officials were up to, he tried to come up with a loophole. 
but he didn't find any. Verse 14 talks about that. He worked all night till dark to try to find a loophole. There's even a chance that he called in Daniel and said, Daniel, you're one of the wisest guys here. Help me out. And the only answer was, the law is the law. Let's obey the law. And Daniel put his trust in God. He also wanted Daniel's God to be real and powerful enough to save him. Look at verses 16 through 20. Then the, I'm still in Matthew. Go back to Daniel 6, verse 16. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve, continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet, with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then at break of day, the king arose and went, into, went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. Uh, the king declared to Daniel, O oh, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? And then Daniel said to the king, May, O oh, king, live forever. My God sent his angel and he shut the lion's mouth and they haven't harmed me. Isn't that interesting? Darius wanted Daniel's God to be real. I'm going to say this to you, and you may not realize this because they may not act like it, but the people around you, your neighbors that don't believe in God, they want him to be real. They really do. They deep down know that they're in trouble. They know that they're not happy, and they want your God to be real, but they're not going to see his power unless you trust him. That's when his power is displayed. 2 Chronicles 16, 9 says, The eyes of the Lord roam to and fro throughout the earth, looking to show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are fully committed to him. When you fully trust him, he will show off on your behalf for his glory. I've got to share this with you. This, this made me laugh when I was doing my study, and I put it in my notes. One commentator that I read said this. He said that Darius would have rested a whole lot better that night if he knew that while he was fasting, the lions were fasting too. <laughs> Isn't that cool? I love that. By the way, um, how did God protect Daniel? How? How? He sent an angel. He sent an angel. Go to Psalm 34 real quick. Look at verse 7. Psalm 34, verse 7. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Daniel wasn't alone in the lion's den, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego weren't alone in the fiery furnace. By the way, let me say this to you real quick. You do have angels that God uses to protect you. The Bible says that the angels are ministering servants sent to serve those who are going to receive salvation. But be careful. Don't pray to your angel. Pray only to God. Remember when John was given the visions in Revelation, he was so overwhelmed, he fell at the feet of the angel showing to him, and the angel quickly said, get up, don't do it, don't do it. Don't pray to your angel. I wouldn't even get hung up on your angel or angels. Put your faith in Jesus. You know why? Think how stupid it would be for you to call out to your angel to protect you 
when you have Jesus himself living within you now. If you were to throw in something, he's there with you. He's there with you himself. Jesus himself said that. He said that in in John chapter 16. Go to John 16. Look at what he says. I love how Jesus first shows his faith in the Father to be with him. And then we'll start in verse 32. Jesus in John 16, 32 says, Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you'll be scattered each to his own home, and you'll leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you're going to have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. He says, look, you guys are all going to leave me, but I'm not going to be alone. I'm not going to be alone. Because the Father's with me. He's always with me. And in this world, you're going to have tribulation, but take heart. I'm going to be in you. I'll always be there. I'll never leave you. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 4. At the end of Paul's life, he said something very, very similar. And you're going to find something also very interesting. 2 Timothy chapter 4. We'll start in verse 16. Paul says that my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me, the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from what? The lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. By the way, rescue doesn't mean you won't die. But he'll walk you through that too. And that happened with Stephen when he was being stoned. You don't hear Stephen saying, ooh, ah, ee, when the stones were hitting him. As he was dying, he said, Father, don't hold this against them. They don't know what they're doing. Forgive them. And I see heaven open and the son standing at the right hand of the father. He was with him. Walked him right into eternity. Folks, you have angels. You, You don't need them. You don't need them. You get Jesus. Let me say this to some of you that feel lonely and alone. As a believer in Jesus Christ and dwelt by the Spirit of God, if you cry out and say, well, I'm all alone. Nobody's here. Nobody looks after me. Now, we should look after each other. The Bible said we should demonstrate the love of Christ to each other. But the person who feels deserted, what are you saying about Jesus when you say, I'm all alone and no one's here? Let me also just point this out to you as well. In verses 16 through 20 in Daniel 6, Darius described Daniel as one who served his God continually. There it is again. Remember how we talked about if people watched your life, could they find stuff? He said it twice. Daniel, as your God whom you serve continually. Let me, I want you to write this down. I, I don't have time to, to have you read it to you because we've got to close in just a little bit here. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verses 16 into chapter 3, verse 5. 2 Thessalonians 2, 16 through 3, 5. Look closely at that and pray that section of Scripture asking God to give you the grace to serve Him continually. That doesn't mean you won't have a slip up. It doesn't mean you will be sinless and perfect. But pray that you have a heart like David, that you'll continually, when you do sin, say, I was wrong. Father, you were right. I confess. I agree. And let's get going from here. But in that passage, it says that it's God who establishes you in every good work and word. And then it says in verse 5, may the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God. Listen, and the perseverance of Christ. The king finds Daniel unharmed in the morning. 
And he also finds that Daniel wasn't alone. Let me say this to you, though. That's what we're going to close with tonight. Daniel's disobedience was not a public rebellion to cause a stir. Did he rebel against the law? Yeah, the law said that he wasn't to pray to anyone but Darius for that month. Well, that goes against the law of God. The law of God says that we're not to pray to anybody but God. We're to worship no one but God. We're to seek no one but God. So Daniel disobeyed. But Daniel didn't run to the king and cry out against this unfair rule. The Bible just says when he heard that it had been signed, he went and prayed quietly. And I prayed about this as I was looking at this because the God's really been speaking to me about this. We, we need to be standing up for what God's word says. But listen, folks, you and your flesh want to take any opportunity to rebel against the government and see as an opportunity to go, uh, 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 I ain't doing it. When the Bible says we're to rebel by obeying God, remember how Paul said, I wasn't causing a commotion. I wasn't causing a stir. I hadn't stirred up the crowd. And I started praying. I said, Lord, are there any evidences in Scripture where someone thought the law was wrong and they went and said, hey, this law is wrong. And he gave me one. But then he showed me that even in doing this and winning, going to the king, Esther did it privately and quietly. If you know the story, remember how she took her life in her own hands by going before the king without being invited? And when she gets there and he says, you're free to come, he goes, what do you want? And she says, would you come to a dinner that I prepared tonight? And he says, I'll do it. And so here she's getting the presence of the king. And what does she do that night after they eat? He says, what do you want? What does she say? Do you remember? She says, can you come to another meal? I remember reading that going, Esther, you got your opportunity. You're not going to get another one. How do you know you're going to get another one? Open your mouth, girl. But remember, she had been fasting and praying. And Mordecai has been fasting and praying. And she's letting the Spirit of God speak to her and lead her. And he says, not yet. And he has another meal and Mordecai and Haman is there. And that's when it all comes to fruition and the timing is perfect. Why? If you know between the first meal and the second what did God have the king do that night when he couldn't sleep? He read the records and he realized no one had ever honored Mordecai. Folks, let me say this to you. Esther did go and say this law isn't right. But she did it privately and quietly and with her eyes on God. There's going to be some things that happen between now and when Jesus takes us home that we ain't going to like. I think we need to pray and we need to vote and we need to be involved, but don't go over the edge of thinking if we make enough of a commotion, we can get this turned around. That's not honoring to God. We quietly trust him and we don't obey when it disagrees with God's word. We, we don't know if Darius became a worshiper of Daniel's God or not, but he definitely described him pretty well in his edict at the end of this chapter, didn't he? We'll close with this right here. Look at Daniel 6, verses 25 and 27. And listen closely. I want to ask you as you read this, had Darius got this from a Bible lesson? Did Darius get this from anybody preaching to him? Or did the Spirit of God just show him this? Daniel chapter 6, verse 25. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, 
Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For Daniel's God is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. Did Darius get that from a Bible lesson? But God himself had Darius preach big time, serious, long-term truth, deep truth. Let me say this to you again. We saw it earlier with Nebuchadnezzar and Nebuchadnezzar and all those guys already believing what God was telling the nation of Israel when they didn't believe. And God's able to get his truth across to people. Let him use you, but don't think for a second that he needs you. I love you guys. We'll see you next week. Thanks for coming.